Hello, and welcome to another episode of What's on the Pile. I'm Nathan Besner, and joining me is Jane Belcastro. Hello. Shane Lee. Hello. And Jenner. Sup. Tonight, we're starting off with The Omen, starring Gregory Peck and directed by the late, great Richard Donner. The Omen is the story of a couple who want a baby and the almost immediate regret of having done so. (laughs) (laughs) Following that is the other major religious horror film, The Exorcist, starring Max von Sydow and directed by William Friedkin. This loving romp shows you the emotional ups and downs of children in their tweens. Let's start off with The Omen. (laughs) No, you're you're not wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'll admit, watching both of these, I was like, well, you know, that's just the terrible twos, and that's puberty. <laughs> so, you know, what can I say? Yeah, they have a they they, they definitely say a lot about child rearing, uh, or at least humorously, <laughs> if you have children. Uh, I I call the Omen the ultimate nature versus nurture film. Interesting way of looking at that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, Donner, uh, supposedly, we could never tell whether he was kidding or not. He kept saying that he didn't think that the kid was the Antichrist. He was just a, a lonely little boy who uh, got adopted and then, you know, weird stuff kept going on around him. Uh, he viewed, he, supposedly, he viewed it purely as a psychological film, but we could never figure out whether he was kidding or not. <laughs> well, so, well, so how did the first nanny, what happened there? She was just She depressed. was just nuts. She was just nuts, and she happened to see she a dog. She had a breakdown, yep. <laughs> and, and, and that was the initial trauma that led to uh, uh, to uh, Damien getting, you know, so skittish about everything else. But in the meantime, the incident convinced other people that he was, you know, fraught with purpose, and consequently just, you know, it's, uh, he, he ended up being a blank slate upon which a bunch of whack jobs kept imposing opposing uh, agendas. And he's just a a nervous uh, and traumatized little boy. I suppose they probably shouldn't have used like boisterous Latin music if they were going for the psychological <laughs> side of things. Before we get too far into the film itself, whose pile was this on? This was on mine, believe it or not. Oh, it was on uh, yours. That's right. Yeah, no, I've I've had copies for ages. Uh, I read the novelization uh serially in in visits to bookstores uh when i was uh you know very young back in the 80s i've seen the remake which is close enough to scene for scene as makes no odds but i had never actually seen the original uh this was on my pile as well i uh really didn't know much about it except that i somehow knew that damien was some sort of evil name i think that's just sort of a cultural thing maybe i i forgot that it was from this movie um but yeah I hadn't seen it yet. I, I remember it was really big when I was in grade school and everybody was always talking about, well, that and The Exorcist, you know, they're just quoting and, you know, talking about the six, 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 six in there. I'd never even seen them until I was like 20 or whatever. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, it's like I felt like I'd seen them before. And of course, uh, Damien is the good guy in uh, The uh, the Exorcist. So that's yeah another interesting I don't I, I don't know. I don't know where they kept pulling that name out aside from, you know, cashing in way too close to the mark, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, on The Omen. Well, The Omen is uh, I suggested this movie because I, I loved it growing up. It was on TBS a whole bunch and uh, I would watch it every time it was edited on TBS. And I finally saw the R-rated version when I was in my teens. Uh, loved it, too. 
Um, but it's a very pulpy film. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and looking back on it, it might not be as quite as good as I remembered, but I still really like it. No, th- this is, uh, albeit being one of those odd instances where the film preceded the pulpy novel, this is absolute paperbacks from hell cl- uh, caliber, you know, pot boiler stuff. This is mostly amusing nonsense. I, I mean, it can't be under, uh, under, uh, you know, I am loath to understate the level of cultural impact that this had, uh, sort of in the way that, uh, Dante completely reorganized uh, culture's view of the structure of hell. Uh, by the same token, this film completely reorganized all of culture's view of how the Book of Revelations works, <laughs> uh, which is, which is definitely an interesting and uh, and enduring legacy. But the film itself is—I don't want to say junk because th- because that's a little bit ungenerous. It's it, it's it's a pot boiler. It is an amusing pot boiler. Yeah, it's a to me it's a fun film. It's not it's not too serious. It is there is a, there are a lot of comedic things about it. And I also like to think of it as slasher adjacent because you have the large vignette murder scenes that kind of make up the film, precursor to uh final destination in a way. Um but the way they're shot, the way those vignettes are shot is is I've used this phrase before, but it's loving. It's almost, it's loving in its construction. That is the meat and potatoes of this film, are those scenes in particular, the boisterous music leading up to uh, an incredible splash of violence. Um, but the violence ends up being kind of kind of pretty because the uh, when pa- Patrick Troughton, uh, uh, not even halfway into the film, I don't think, um, get skewered by the weather vane thing um it's a beautiful shot it's beautifully structured uh the way the eye is drawn to the to the corners and then to the middle is is just very very well done and uh that's that's one reason i let some of the some of the uh scripting bits some of the plotting uh get away with what it what it was doing are yeah, you... it's a it, it's a hammer film on a 20th century Fox budget. Right. <laughs> are, are you referring to the priest? I, I forgot all the characters' names. Yes, the, yes, the priest. The priest. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was kind of. I mean, I thought that death was really cool. I also thought he had like a full 10 seconds to get out of the I, way. Yeah, that was me <laughs> precisely. I was like, well, you're just sitting there staring, going no, and looking up. It's like you and, could have. Yeah, and and then I thought it was hilarious that the newspaper printed that picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, of yeah. The that that got a giggle out of me uh, on uh, on this view as well. I mean, I, at the same time, it also makes the movie you know one of the all time great film trivia answers. What is the film in which Gregory Peck and Patrick Troughton appear? <laughs> I forgot Patrick Troughton was in this. Uh, most well known in my circles for Doctor Who. Oh, absolutely. Although he was uh, he was a Hammer regular as well, which. I think is sort of an affectionate uh, uh, nod there, because even if, as I understand that the uh, sort of the pilot behind the project was mostly pr- the producer who then contracted the writer, and then they ended up uh, getting Donner for it, basically from being an old pro from uh, mostly television uh, episodes and pictures up to that point. Um, 
it was uh, Donner who sort of had the love of Hammer Pictures that really imbued the atmosphere of the film, which I don't think stands out uh, anywhere more profoundly uh, than in the very stage-bound but very, very elegantly creepy uh, derelict cemetery scene. Oh, yeah, I love that scene with the dogs, and it's very creepy. Well, I was just going to say, from from a structural standpoint, I find it most interesting. This actually struck me when I saw the remake, uh, appropriately, uh, appropriately enough, on its elegant stunt release date of uh, June 6th, 2006. Um <laughs> Which was really the only reason that that film particularly exists, other than the rather inspired casting of Mia Farrow as the governess. Um, aside from that, however, the thing that I find most interesting from a narrative standpoint about the film is that they're setting up the photographer in what looks like you know an easy pickoff role, but then like two thirds of the uh, or like uh, maybe three fifths of the way into the movie, it turns into a buddy road picture. <laughs> with Gregory, yeah. with Gregory Peck and David Warner, <laughs> yeah, he became that. my favorite character. I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I remember thinking early on, you know, you have Gregory Peck, who's like America's dad, and he's surrounded by these two creepy guys, the priest and the, and the photographer, and they both turn out to be good. I mean, the priest was, you know, had some issues, but the photographer, I, I didn't know oh, what I he was it. doing for most of the movie, and then all of a sudden, there's this big exposition dump, and then they're just off to Italy. That that being said, I did have to read over the Wikipedia synopsis of this after having seen the film just to kind of catch myself back back up to realize, oh, those things in the photograph were what the title was referring to. Ah. Yeah. Time I learned. Yeah. Like, uh, because I didn't understand the title otherwise, aside from, you know, all of the you know sort of prophecy, but that's not an omen, that's prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> They would have called it The Prophecy before the other two movies called Prophecy or The Prophecy. <laughs> I, I figured it was just a cool name. That's what it I thought. It is a cool name. <laughs> all these years. I figured it meant, uh, you know, it was a, these were all things that were omens of, you know, the ultimate revelation. So, you know. You, you had some amusing thoughts on The Priest, meanwhile, uh, Jane. Did, oh, yeah, the way he was raving. I mean, all he had to do was go into Gregory Peck's office and say, hey, guess what? I know you're not going to believe this, but hear me out. <laughs> Instead, he goes in and he acts all aggressive. He's coked scary, to the gills. <laughs> and he's like, you know, quoting all sorts of scripture that just don't make sense. And, and yeah, he's definitely high on morphine. Well, we find that out later. And, of course, he doesn't get his point across until it's way too late. And I guess, I guess morphine would be, I don't know. I don't know. That. Morphine <laughs> knocks you out. That's what I was thinking. I mean, I was figuring if he was. Would explain what would explain and go, man, I just had this great trip. What would, would explain <laughs> why he couldn't get out of the way of that, uh, of that uh, uh, falling uh, lightning True. rod or whatever the hell it was. You know, he just, he, he just didn't have the reflexes for it. But, uh, <laughs> that, that, that explains. It. Thank you. But, but but otherwise, his character is an absolute lesson in burying the lead, or otherwise a an effective counterexample for the universal principle that if you are to attempting to convey an important message to the person for whom the message will be important, one should attempt to gauge one's delivery to the person to whom one is delivering the message. Precisely. Yep. <laughs> 
I mean, he goes into the guy's office and just starts saying, and, you know, and the mother is a ja. And that was, okay. I was like, Jackal? Really? Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, is that, is that what he was saying? Yeah, because it, it said Jack on my subtitle and then cut off, and I right. I never figured out what he was trying to say. Yeah, uh, I think he was trying to say Jackal because he saw the skeleton of the, uh, the, oh. the dog skeleton. Well, so, it wasn't really a dog. It was more of a... Jackal. So, jackal. so that, that was literally the boy's mother, that animal? Yep. Yes. That, that that was the implication, yes. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> um, there's some. Uh, there's something I noticed while watching the film. Uh, uh, it has a very photographic eye. Like like I was saying before, the uh, the vignette murders are shot very, very lovingly. Um, but there's a photo montage uh, when we see Damien growing up, uh, and the way it's cut is very similar to La Jete, uh, which is the film that uh, 12 Monkeys was based on, uh, which is entirely told through photographs. Um, and I get, I, the, I get the feeling that the editor, Stuart Baird, who is a very good editor, uh, might have been making a sort of uh, editorial reference to uh to that particular film and given that it has such a such a photographic uh uh milieu about it for the entire film um he probably thought that that would be apropos i mean i wrote hallmark in my notes i have i, I have not seen la <laughs> Jete. It's, it's been on my criterion channel list for like a year it's only 25 minutes long right yeah so i don't know why i haven't gotten because i love 12 monkeys so i don't know why i haven't gotten around to seeing that yet I hadn't Could... made that connection, but I would certainly allow it as a possibility. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Baird is really, really good. And I didn't know any of these things, and now I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's Take great. notes, honey. <laughs> I, I have a copy. We'll get on it. Because um... I do like Twelve Monkeys quite a lot. Yeah. Quite a lot. Uh, no, the, the, phot- the photography in this is the sort of you know vaguely diffused. You know, post Laszlo Kovacs slash uh, Vilmo Sigmund, that was uh, very much a hallmark of, uh, of prestige pictures in the 70s, but particularly of the way 20th Century Fox was doing its genre films around the same time as well. The other, uh, the Robert Mulligan film from 1972, has uh, has a very similar sort of visual tone to it. Uh, there is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the one of the vignettes that I the the best vignette to me in the entire film is the death of David Warner. Um when the pickup truck goes backwards and a plate glass flies out and decapitates him. The way it's shot is just masterful. It and the way it's cut is also masterful in in that they probably shot that at 14 different angles all at the same time and then just cut between them but each cut uh it wouldn't be on the action they would a cut would show the decapitation the next cut would show the decapitation the next cut would show the decapitation but it happens so quickly it looks like it's all one smooth action um and i actually uh i remember hearing a joe bob briggs regale uh regale is about a uh um a screening of the film where 
because everything was was held back, uh, people would see the decapitation and they'd be screaming in the theater and oh, that's gross, and they turn their cover their eyes and then they would look back, but it's still going because. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I can fully imagine that the pitch meeting for the original Final Destination was just, you know, the, the producer, you know, just putting that clip on and saying, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it, it's uh, it, it's uh, the serial killer or or in this case, the uh, the metaphysical uh, force that's out to get you as Rube Goldberg or vice versa. Right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, um we we watched the um what was it, the cursed or what was what, what oh, was that? Oh, uh, uh curse or coincidence that, or was it coincidence or that, curse? One the little like that. uh the little supplementary feature where uh, some of the principals of the film including Richard Donner. This is actually one of the points where he mentions that he didn't think that the movie was uh, was actually a supernatural film that it was just a psychological horror film and that it was, you know, Peck who was completely out of his freaking mind by the end of the movie. Uh, just you know, traumatizing this poor young kid who you know, just wanted a loving home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the reason why I brought it up, and you're going to have to help me remember, sweetie, because you know the brain is gone. But uh, he said that somebody's girlfriend, somebody on the production, who oh, actually had something to do with. Yeah, there. Uh, well, no, there was uh, an extraordinary collection of you know, coincidences or curses <laughs> that uh, beset. The production. Um, well, one of them was one, one the girlfriend. Of, one of them was uh, there was a plane that uh, they had chartered and ended up not actually taking mm -hmm. uh, the the flight on. Uh, they had just uh, used it on the runway. That uh, the following day, or actually just uh, I think right right after they had done the photography for the uh, for the private jet, it had taken off, uh, run into a flock of. Uh, geese, I believe, uh, that uh, caused it to lose altitude and make a crash landing, ending up uh, going into the road where it hit a car that was uh, killing the two occupants who were the girlfriend and... Um, so it was the pilot's wife and daughter. It, it was the pilot's separate. wife and daughter. Uh, this is a separate oh, one. Right? Uh, oh, you know, it was the, uh, the, uh, the effects guy, John Richardson, who... That's it. Who I'm worked not... on that beheading. Uh, who worked on that beheading uh, was in an auto accident uh, a little while uh, a little while afterwards, and uh, his uh, girlfriend was beheaded by a sheet of plate glass oh, coming through the, the windshield. How awful! There was a, there, there was some I serious know. tragedy going around, and I, and I, I didn't get a chance to look up the reference. I am wondering if John Richardson is the same John Richardson, the actor who was in Hammer's She back in 1965. So that's me slacking on my due diligence there. But yeah, there was a lot of weird stuff going on around this that ended up. Uh, obviously, it was a tragedy. At the same time, they kind of ended up in the uh, in in the newspapers because it was uh, creating ballyhoo for the picture. Right. They really leaned into it. The studio really leaned into it. And weirdly, I mean, did you catch that Richard Donner was kind of like smiling at some of the gorier stories? I mean, he wasn't somber about it at all. He was. Like, Especially the one about the the beheading Oops. and the guy. He's like the guy actually worked on that, you know. And he looked kind of, kind of gleeful. I don't know. It was kind of <laughs> nuts. Y'all watch that that uh, that um, special 
Yeah, there, there are more supplemental features on the more uh, on the more recent uh, Scream Factory release. We ended up watching the original 20th Century Fox Blu-ray, which has me wondering if I should pick up the Scream Factory release because it was definitely a bit on the overdark and pallid side. I'm wondering if it wasn't just an up-res of their 2006 uh, DVD transfer. But the supplementary features are plentiful. I mean, it's got three audio commentaries. Uh, some deleted scenes, and uh, you know, just kind of a mess of, uh, of uh, interesting background. Yeah, supposedly it was a cursed production, is kind of the short version. Yeah. Or even if it wasn't actually cursed, because as Donner himself says, you know, things happen on every production. If it, if it was a comedy, we'd be remembering the funny stories, because this was a horror movie. Obviously, we remember the stuff that went wrong. Uh you know, it's, you can you can never quite tell how firmly his tongue is in cheek, just because he has sort of that I don't Hollywood hard boiled delivery, just in general, <laughs> as befits That's a director as befits a director of his generation. In any case, oh, he he seemed I, to me. I mean, although you know, he he seemed slightly like gleeful that all this stuff happened. I don't know. I y'all y'all be the judge. Watch the uh, the supplement and see. But judge. For yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do not have a copy. I watched it on Amazon streaming. Uh, it looked okay. It looked... Well, speaking speaking of believe it or not, amusingly, I finally realized uh, when I was looking up who uh, the uh, the first uh, nanny, the one who hanged herself, was. That was Holly Palance. Go on. Jack Palance's daughter, who co-hosted Ripley's Believe It or Not with him in the early 1980s. That was where I recognized her from. Cool. Oh, that's very cool. Well, I mean, the cast of the movie is an impressive collection of, uh, well, of course, you know, British that guys, including, you know, the uncredited Leo McKern, who is... I wanted to bring him up very much. Leo McKern is awesome. Uh, I always remember him from Lady Hawk. Another yeah. Richard Donner oh. film. Another yeah. Richard Donner film. Oh. Yeah. He's he's a Richard Donner regular. Semi, if you, uh, I suppose, if you're in more than one movie, that makes you a regular. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. It's, I find it interesting that he was uncredited, except for the sheer stature that he had as uh, a British, uh, you know, theater and television and screen actor at that point. Uh, that I, I guess it, it was one of the it was one of those bits like Chevy Chase in the Dustin Hoffman movie Hero. He didn't take the credit just to you know you know because he was just that baller. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, it's uh, it, it's a wonderful little turn, and it made me very happy because I was I wasn't expecting that uh, when when he turned up. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean you got David Warner, Patrick Troughton, Gregory Peck, and poor poor Lee Remick. As one of the most gizmo of all gizmos in horror movie history, <laughs> she yeah. gets dropped twice from I high pl- from one yes. high. Pl- she doesn't. She doesn't get killed getting dropped from one high place. So they drop her from a higher place. That's how that works. Oh. <laughs> and her baby was murdered. But she, yeah. she she definitely got uh, she definitely got the dog's business of it all. Yeah. Oh boo! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the point the point is it's not a profound film whatever effect that it had on uh, on popular culture in general in in general, but it is entertaining. It's Yeah. I am actually not over the moon about Jerry Goldsmith's score. I I know that it was the one movie he got an Oscar for. Uh it is good that Jerry Goldsmith should have gotten an Oscar, but as I was watching the movie for the most part, 
you know, with the whole shrieking Ave Satani and, th- and thing, and I'm thinking, really? <laughs> this? Oh, I, I want to talk about Ave Satani. Uh, talk about Ave like... Satani, Shane. Okay, so Nate, this is something you might remember. <laughs> um, okay, so one of my favorite um, vocalists working in rock is Mike Patton. He's most known for the, being the, uh, the frontman for the band Faith No More. But he's he's known for having like a million side projects, and one of them is a band called Phantomas, and they have an album called The Director's Cut, where it's a bunch of metal covers of old movies, uh, themes or scores. They did like the, the, the Godfather's on there, Night of the Hunter, nice. um, uh, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me. Their Spider Baby is amazing, Ooh. by the way. Oh, and also God, and also damn. and also Ave Satani. And so Nate, we used to Nate and I used to make anime music videos. Jenner, did you make any, or were you? I made a, I, I made a couple. I only ever really completed one. Uh, I had like the guts of two other ones that uh, Baranti ended up deleting off of his computer for one reason or another. <laughs> no. So <laughs> anyway, I, I, I was much more sort of a, a, an associated character than an actual AMV creator, but uh, even so, you were an enthusiast. I was an enthusiast <laughs> slash right hand man. <laughs> anyway <laughs> so nate and i were involved in this sort of quote-unquote project where we were making these bullshit videos <laughs> and i ended up making one using this this metal this like speed metal of ave satani to a cutesy girly anime called handmade may <laughs> and, and we called the video we called the video hell made may it was absolute bullshit oh um, i remember that yeah yeah that and was we so somehow, fun and we somehow got it shown during an anime convention and the crowd was so confused but I, had, I had forgotten i totally forgotten about this cover until i started watching the omen and and heard the song heard the original version of the song again uh anyways that's just sort of this little anecdote i would definitely suggest checking out phantomas the album's called the director's cut uh it, it's pretty amazing and just mike Patton in general i think is phenomenal he's actually done some movie scores i believe and a little bit of limited acting yeah, I swear I, I I know him from somewhere, and it's probably not Faith No More, but uh, yeah, no, I'm sure he's around. But yeah, no, that that sounds neat. I I had remembered that video. I too, I think, didn't really quite know what to make of it at the time, aside from what we were we were all sort of into that whole meta thing anyway. So it's like, okay, okay. <laughs> I I did I did not get the direct reference, however. So that's 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 kind of awesome. I think it's a good cover of the song, actually. It's probably on YouTube if you look it up. Fair enough. Could Anyways. even possibly be on Spotify. It's on, yeah, it's on Spotify for sure. Okay, well, then real, I'll check it out. Realistically, I probably still have a copy of the video around here somewhere. Anyway. I do not. Oh. And now I've got that uh, We Care A Lot going around in my head. <laughs> so I'm gonna... That was before he joined <laughs> the band. That, that was somebody oh, really? else. That, yeah, oh, really? Was... So like that was more like... Epic was. Epic was him, yeah. Yeah. I have a special place in my heart for the for the music from uh, the Omen because it I used it in my first short film I ever made when I was uh, oh, awesome. fourteen years old. I used that right. and uh, um, what's the thing from Excalibur that everybody uses? Uh, oh, Fortuna. Oh, Fortuna. Or... Thank you. I was, it was either that or uh, or Siegfried's funeral uh, procession. It was yeah. Ofortuna. Yeah, everybody uses that, and so did I. <laughs> the, the 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 makings of a young filmmaker. We all love that practically, music. Pra- it, yeah, pr- there was that period where it was practically a rite of passage to use Ofortuna somewhere in your oeuvre. <laughs>
always wanted to uh, to uh, uh, take the version of Ofortuna from the end of Carmina Burana rather than the beginning because there's this long prelude so nobody realizes what's coming and do a video for Mia under seven. <laughs> the, be... most, the most low-key congenial anime I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, AMVs. I kind of miss them sometimes. Good times. Yeah, it was do. a good period in our lives, I think, mostly, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> It was fun. We had fun. <laughs> well, uh, does anybody have anything else they want to say about the Omen? Fun pulp. Yeah. Fun. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, if you've seen the original, you kind of don't need to see the remake, aside from, you know, David Thewlis is kind of fun in the David Warner role. Yeah. Uh, and and Liev Schreiber possibly has more acting commitment to the role than uh, than Gregory Peck was does but it doesn't matter because good lord it's Gregory Peck in a horror movie like a straight horror movie not like a, a horror adjacent picture like Cape Fear um i i wrote one note uh that says Gregory Peck is almost too good for this movie hmm. you might not be wrong <laughs> <laughs> Well, just uh, Dave Richard Donner is probably too good for this movie. Yeah, <laughs> but they brought da they brought David that glee Se to it. No, David Seltzer was not a profound screenwriter. If, if the movie has any shortcomings, aside from it's really not my favorite Goldsmith score. I mean, not by a country mile. Um, it, the the weakness is in the script, which is again pure seventies pulp. This is. Again, as I say, this is elevated paperbacks from hell material, but that's that's really okay. That's it's kind of gratifying that you could end up with a picture like this that becomes a classic of sorts, just because only a few years before the concept of a prestige horror film was completely unheard of. But of course, we'll be circling back on that in the second half. <laughs> and all that being said, I think we are actually kind of primed to watch the sequel and the omen three and uh, i mean we were talking about watching yeah no I'm, I'm curious so not immediately but i think we were talking i certainly would like to yeah so. i've been i've been meaning to finally get around to those not least for sam neil as uh, as the grown-up uh, damien and omen three uh, i haven't um, seen him either the second one, aside from Damien being a little bit older and in a military school, is mostly more of the same, except with William Holden as Gregory Peck's brother, which is just kind of too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Not least since Holden had passed on the Gregory Peck role for this film. <laughs> he didn't want to make a movie with the devil in it. <laughs> uh, that That's uh, another one of the little amusing nuggets that I picked up from, uh, uh, from the Wikipedia. Also that they had offered this to, amongst others, Charles Bronson, Roy Scheider. Uh, Charles Bron like I say, I can see Charles Bronson passing on this because Charles Bronson would have just drop kicked the little fucker into infinity. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you know, acting. Anyways. <laughs> All right, I think we should take our break there. We will be right back. Turns out they're more closely related to uh, cacti than, uh, you know, the earth primates, but... Deep in the forgotten corners of our galaxy, 
A mighty space hulk blazes through the stars. Its crew, a motley gang of misfits who are just out for a good time. He's sparking for fuck's sake. Yes. Okay. They have harnessed the mysterious fuel called nostalgia. And we're off, alright. By remembering the cartoons of their youth. Now, standing in their way, the evil Emperor Zorbak, who just wants to shut their screw down and conquer every planet along the way. Thankfully, their ship holds a weapon with enough firepower to restore the balance. Yes, you neglected the anime space cannon. They are. The Bastards of the Universe. I think you know damn well who we are. Thursdays at 8. Let's cast this pod. Only on Twitch. And we are back. Uh, next up, we're going to be talking about The Exorcist. Um, this was definitely on my pile. Uh... Though I felt like I'd seen it because I'd seen all of the the major scenes from the film throughout my lifetime. It's just one of those films where I felt like, well, I've seen this basically, so why ever watch it? And um, boy, am I glad that I actually watched the whole film because uh, it's effective. Um, that that that's that's a word. <laughs> did, uh, did everyone watch the? Uh... The, the version you've never seen is, I think, the official title of it, the, the director's cut. No. That, no. That's, what I did, that's what I watched on Amazon. I, I'd seen it before. I rented it on VHS at Blockbuster the one time I saw it. Uh, I don't remember which version I saw then. But, um, yeah, I saw There's... the director's cut. And uh, from what I've read, it doesn't add a ton. Uh, that's about 15 minutes of material. Um uh, this is one of those things where I could very easily launch into one of my rants on comparative videography, <laughs> because there are technically five different cuts of this film, of which four are still varying degrees of in circulation. Um, the original—I'll uh, leave—I'll save that for a little bit later. <laughs> I don't think that I saw the same version that you did, Shane, and I watched it on Amazon too. I must have watched like the regular had- version. They had, have, yeah, they had the, the one mine had a red bar above it that said the version you've never seen. Okay. And apparently, yeah. So it, I think it was two two hundred, not two hundred, two hours and like twelve minutes long or something like that, a little bit uh, longer. So I don't remember which version I saw before. I think the the version, I think this version was already out when I saw it originally, but I I just don't remember. I'm told there's a cool spider walk in it. Oh, you didn't have the there spider is. walk. Yeah, yes. but no. you, you you must have seen the spider walk already, though, right? Yeah, I've Somewhere seen else. it. In, I saw it in ads. That was the big selling point when they were trying to get people back in theaters to see the version you've never seen. Is they'd be like, "Ed, there's the spider walk," and show shot of I, the spider walk, and so it, I'd seen it. it. What is that? It, it it literally is just the shot of the spider walk, and that's it. Uh, it's a spider walk. The spider <laughs> walk is where Linda Blair is bent over backwards, going oh. down the stairs uh, okay. on her. Yeah, the the funny story about uh, that is the restoration of the Spider Walk. Uh, there is an extraordinary moment in the Fear of God, the feature length documentary that was included with the special edition video release uh, on VHS and DVD, uh, albeit in an abbreviated form on VHS of uh, of uh, the Exorcist, uh, where 
it's w William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty, the director and the writer, reminiscing for a bit and talking about the spider walk. And on screen, they figure out how to re how they could have made it work in the movie. <laughs> that that scene in that documentary alone, I, I firmly believe, spurred the studio to well send them back to the editing suite. Because technically, the version you've never seen, there's a reason it wasn't called the, the director's cut theatrically, because strictly speaking, it's not the director's cut. It's essentially Blatty's preferred version of the film. Friedkin's director's cut is more or less either the theatrical version or the special edition, which themselves have only one key difference between the two. Um, in the theater, well, actually, check that. Even what we call the theatrical version isn't actually the theatrical version. Do you do you want me to go into this now, or do you want me to save it for later? No, you've already started. Why not continue? Okay, the original theatrical version of the film was very similar to the version that uh, some of us uh, grew up with on you know VHS and uh, that sort of thing, and the old uh, you know Warner Brothers uh, uh, VHS with the, the little green strip at the very uh, at the very top of the uh, tape. Uh, with one key difference, or actually a series of key differences spread throughout the films, which is that those little semi-subliminal flashes uh, that permeate the uh, the picture uh, were actually subliminal in the original theatrical release. Uh, they were they were flashed so fast, just like one frame here or there, that you couldn't consciously register that they were actually there. So essentially, they were forced, uh, as a matter of sort of public controversy, uh, to extend the little subliminals uh, so that they actually were visible and thus legal under uh, FCC regulations. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, there was the, the standard theatrical version, which differs from what's called the special edition in really only one way in the sequence at the climax of the film where the demon is in the process of possessing. Uh, Father Karras, the flashes between him as himself versus him as the demon are done in a series of hard cuts, whereas in the special edition, the transition was actually done via a digital morphing, so there wasn't any actual cutting in it, which was a great surprise to me knowing the, uh, uh, the, pr the previous video releases when I finally came around to the special edition. One, it was much better looking than it had been on any of the previous video releases. And two, there was that bit, which surprised me so much I ended up re rewinding it to watch it again just to make sure that my eyes weren't deceiving. The version that you've never seen, as they say, was the uh, extended version of the film based uh, a lot more on Blatty's ideas, uh, particularly the, uh, the sequence at the end uh, between uh, the uh, the surviving father and uh, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Kinderman, the cop, basically makes the movie into a direct prequel to The Exorcist Three, which I will probably itself circle back on later. <laughs> I am given to understand, and I didn't even realize this. There are apparently a few more tweaks that Friedkin himself indicated for the version that is now called on Blu-ray and possibly on streaming, although I'm not sure the extended director's cut. So so there you have it, the five different, four extant uh, cuts of The Exorcist. Does this mean it's still on my pile and I have to watch some of these uh, longer <laughs> versions? Because uh, I might wait a while for that. It, it's not that acute a difference. The, uh, the extensions make the film, uh, aside from the spider walk, which is an effective shock, and 
realistically probably was something that they couldn't quite have done uh, originally just because the uh, uh, cable or rope that they had fastened around uh, Linda Blair's uh, midsection would have been very difficult to optically erase at the time of the original release, but it, with you know modern digital trickery um, was relatively easy to take care of. Uh, but that being said, mostly they're just expansions to uh, character bits. Uh, I don't well, know I, that it's really necessary. I actually, I actually prefer the more or less theatrical version or special edition, just because it does have a, sort of a greater level of sustained intensity to it. I did read that the, the version you've never seen has a lot more sequences of Reagan being tested. Did you guys have that in your version of the movie? That, no, to no, me, that, uh, that that is a distinct difference there. I mean, the skepticism, that me, the skepticism goes on longer. Yeah, that to me made a big difference because to me, like, it made a large part of the film almost like medical horror, where you're being shuffled from doctor to doctor, and they're they're just guessing. You know, they don't. And that's mm -hmm. happened to me in real life, where yeah, there's the horror of of that, and that to me before there's any kind of overt sort of devil stuff in there. That to me was what was really making things like tense and, and, and effective. Oh, oh no, I have to allow at this distant remove, the single sequence of the movie that I find most completely unsettling is the spinal tap and MRI scene. Oh yeah, with the blood shooting out of the where they were putting, I guess they were putting dye into yeah, her. Yeah, it was yeah. dye. For that. Yeah, and, and, the, and the blood just shooting out of her neck. I, I'll admit that was, I was, I had my hands over my eyes and my knees on i was sitting indian style or whatever <laughs> crisscross applesauce on the bed <laughs> and uh yeah i was not having a good time with that and, and yeah. part of it is that child in peril thing oh, yeah, yeah. I, made, I, I made a note of it it's an hour and 20 minutes before we even hear the word exorcism you know before that it's just doctors and psychiatrists trying to figure out what the hell's going on with this girl i mean we all know because of the title but um it, it's a different kind of, of fear up until that point I. I didn't expect that, uh, having never seen it before. I, I didn't, I didn't know that they were going to go that deep into the the medical explanations first, uh, which I really appreciated because they t took a lot of care to make it uh, <laughs> somewhat realistic in uh, in my experience, at least. Well, the extraordinary thing about the film is the degree to which it, which it is grounded in a very solid sense of the place and time from which it emerged. I mean, it, obviously, it starts off with this, uh, you know, kind of timeless, uh, almost surreal sequence uh, with uh, uh, Father Marin in Iraq. But then, you know, you're down on the ground in 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 G Town, uh, making a motion picture where somebody uh, where where somebody is uh, is uh, talking about human rights. It is 1970 fucking three, um, <laughs> or or I suppose when they were filming it, it's 1970 fucking two, but. Speaking of 1973, and going back to, uh, or echoing some comments that I made it earlier, the idea of a prestige studio horror film really only began with Rosemary's Baby, which was five years before this. Now, personally, I, I hold Rosemary's Baby to be even more dated than The Exorcist. <laughs> the Exorcist, I uh, possibly have been bearing the lead. I love this movie. Um... Uh, I find it powerful enough that it overcomes the elements of it, which may uh, which may seem a little bit dated at this point. That being said, I love Exorcist Three even more, uh, not least because it kind of isn't dated really, except for a, a very few of the visual details here and there. 
And that, that of course, was the one that Blatty got to direct. But leaving that aside uh, for the moment, and potentially as uh, another conversation for another time, because I don't think Jane has seen it. Um, <laughs> uh, no, this is... Uh, it, 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 can't, it, can, it would be difficult to overstate what an extraordinary year for horror movies, and in the history of horror movies, 1973 was as a whole. This was the year that... Uh, Don't Look Now came out. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, the year of um, uh, The Legend of Hell House, uh, you know, 20th Century Fox, uh, albeit uh, uh, still as an independent pickup, but uh, giving a wide release uh, to a haunted house movie. Um, but, uh, good Lord, I mean, a Theater of Blood came out this year, and yes, that's a Vincent Price movie, but as far as I know, it's the first Vincent Price movie that was actually rated R when it was released. Uh, and that's uh, still sort of a mild classic in its own right. And, uh, of course, The Wicker Man, although that di really didn't make it stateside until 1974, and even then in uh, a varying collection of different cuts. But then, right in December, there was this. The, the prestige studio horror movie to begin all prestige studio horror movies. The first horror movie ever to be nominated for a Best Picture Academy Award and nine other Academy Awards, uh, of which it won Best Adapted Screenplay. You have to understand that up until the early 60s, horror was considered pretty much a kiddie medium. And the 60s definitely did start so showing some rumblings in the direction of greater seriousness. Um, I, I mentioned Theater of Blood re being released with an R rating uh, originally because uh, The Conqueror Worm, the 1968 Vincent Price picture, has been subsequently re-rated R. But realistically, up until Rosemary's Baby, the idea that this was that there was room for seriousness in the medium was uh, kind of risable. They were they were mostly programmers and uh, and uh, stuff uh, to uh, you know get get butts in seats and get some dollars on the uh, on the ledger so they could do quote unquote serious pictures. And then there is this, which is a serious picture, and it's funny. And it has tremendous entertainment value, and it's it, it, it's everything a studio picture or prestige picture actually should be. It is not Oscar bait, and at the same time, it's a horror movie. That was extraordinary at the time. So, as much as anything else, for its pride of pride of place in the history of my pet film genre. Uh, I, I have to acknowledge the importance of uh, of this movie, but I have to allow. I didn't. I was a little lukewarm to it the first few times that I had seen it, but the more I watch it, the more I like it. it it's it's grown on me. Uh, it, uh, oddly enough, as the years have passed, as it has grown ironically more dated. It feels like you know something that actually happened then and could actually happen now. And of course, you know we're still you know, revisiting The Exorcist on a semi regular basis uh, from time to time, even now which is not something that really happens to the Omen unless uh, some studio exec at uh, Fox or Mace Neufeld try to force it. No, oh, I revisit the Omen, but that's just one man. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I don't mean in terms of watching it. I'll watch stuff all over the place. I mean in terms of uh, you know, actually getting, you know, reboot, rehash, re-examine. Re re Telev the tele well, the television. Tele oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I want to I wanna make... Clear. I, I use the word effective very, very specifically uh, because the film is incredibly effective even now. 
when I came in on this film, um, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder a little bit because uh, my mom has been telling me for years it's the scariest horror movie I've ever seen. It's so it scary. Is not. It scared it scared everybody at the time, and and you just have to see it. And so. I, well, they well they were a lot of them were seeing the version with those fucking subliminals. I, I, <laughs> I mind figured, control. I figured that it was uh, it was uh, not going to be scary. I, I was like, uh, I don't see how this is going to top anything I've seen before. So I had a chip on my shoulder coming in. But this film has some of the most intense violence I have ever seen in a film. The scene where Linda Blair is uh, the very first time you see her really getting fucked up in the bed when she's just going up and down and up and down and up and down so quickly. Uh, that really shook me. And I was surprised by that, that a, that a film uh, that does seem dated in, in some of its uh, uh, almost it's almost like a time capsule of, uh, of medical stuff. Um yeah, it's it's just it's it's incredibly effective uh, still, and uh, that surprised me. And of course, again, the whole children child in peril. Oh yeah, definitely one of those one of our triggers, and I I can see that it definitely bothered me the medical scenes because of that. But otherwise, uh, I kind of recognized you know I I, I recognized a bit of Reagan in, in you know. Pub, uh, pubescent me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, what well, can I say? Kids go nuts around that time anyway. So <laughs> apparently, since we talked about the Omen and Donner being cagey about whether or not that was a supernatural film, apparently that was. There's a debate with this one too between Blatty and Friedkin. That I think Blatty argued that it wasn't necessarily an actual possession; that it could have just been a child with some psychological disorder. Which I found interesting. Although, then how is how are people floating around and all that kind of stuff? Right. Well, def this... he definitely leaned away from that later on. I mean, especially if you see Exorcist Three. Uh, although that is a very different creature, and at the same time, it's very different from the novel uh, from which it was adapted as well. Uh, but uh, uh, at least as far as the novel, uh, I was under the impression I've never actually read the novel. I mean, again, speaking from the uh, about the uh, the paperbacks from Hell era. Uh, of course, it was a tremendously successful novel in its own right, but it was pretty clear that there was something supernatural going on there. Um, that being said, I don't know. I mean, maybe the case, a case could be made for it being a, sort of an, an instance of mass hysteria, but I don't. I I think uh, I think Blatty is probably the more humanist of uh, of the two, although that doesn't necessarily show through. Uh, quite so. He, he kind of leans in the opposite direction as a as a director, but as a writer, I think he was probably uh, uh, the more humanist between him and Friedkin. Friedkin, of course, in the meantime, has spent the last few years uh, kind of uh, revisiting sort of the real uh, some real world ideas uh, surrounding this picture. So, if anything, he's leaned back in the uh, the direction of the uh, of the hardcore mysticistic. Uh, did you know this is a Christmas movie? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I had to double check to confirm, but uh, that's why yeah, I say right, a... at the, right at the end of an already momentous year for horror movies, there was, you know, this fucking freight train. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in one of the opening shots after, after the scene in Iraq, there, the shot of the town, you see a building that says Merry Christmas. And I wrote down, hey, it's a Christmas movie. I mean, <laughs> well, I can, that's were, a, that's good enough for me. All the kids were wearing 
the kids were wearing Halloween costumes, though. Well, that was the implication is the uh, the actual incidents leading up to the exorcism were actually spread over months. Right. Uh, which, which makes it just that much more un unnerving that this thing has been going on to the point where when when she finally does visit the priests of uh, 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 Reagan's mom, Ellen Burstyn, um, Mrs. McNeil, um, is, is kind of in a state of near shell shock in her own right. Uh, it's the, the way that it sort of progresses methodically, uh, is, uh, I, I know this is like my favorite word on the, uh, on this show, but it, it is an extraordinarily, an extraordinary feat of tonal modulation. Uh, it is careful. Uh, it is, it is methodical. It does its due diligence before saying, yeah, we probably need a priest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it I does. agree. It felt like a novel in the way it set up all the characters, the premise, and there was nothing overtly supernatural for a long time. Just this vague sense of just dread and, and something is wrong. And uh, it, it sustains that for a very long time before it really tips its hand and we realize what we're dealing with. Je Jess actually asked, uh, why is this called The Exorcist at one point? <laughs> I'm guessing that <laughs> yeah, was, I was what, thinking the same. Tw 27, 35 minutes into the film? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> 45 minutes, we, maybe. We're going to come back to that guy who was jogging at the beginning of the movie at some point? Who was that guy? <laughs> <laughs> why does he look like Sal Minio? That was funny. <laughs> oh. oh, and... Just for the acting in this, uh, I mean, Burston is wonderful. Linda Blair catches hell in in, in this picture. I mean, I mean, that's I, ah. that that was that was so low hanging fruit. It comes out the other side, but that's, even so, that's Ellen Burston who plays the mom. Yes, yes, uh, Ellen. Bur what did I say? You said Bur you just said Burston. I was just oh, giving, Ellen Burston. I was just telling our audience the whole name. That that being said, dear God. I keep doing it. Uh, Jason Miller and Max von Sydow. Yeah. Miller was, uh, like uh, like William Peter Blatty, he was very much a refugee from television uh, as much as anything else. Although, although Miller, of course, did a lot more stuff on stage. Up to this point, or up to the point of the publication of The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty was primarily known as a sitcom writer, if you can get your mind around that. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no, he wrote for uh, you know like uh, Sid Caesar and uh, and uh, your show of shows and Ernie Kovacs and uh, sort of uh, all of the great sketch comedians from American television in the uh, in, in the late fifties and sixties. Uh, but um, I, I I I can't stress how freaking amazing uh, Jason Miller's performance is in this movie, and he was amazing in all of the stuff that he did for Blatty. Uh, he was later on uh, a major supporting role in uh, the Ninth Configuration, and while he was not originally cast in uh, The Exorcist Three, he was uh, when the studio decided that they wanted reshoots. And having seen the reconstruction of the original cut of Exorcist Three, I actually have to agree with the studio on that picture. But it is still, in my humble opinion. However, it got that way, possibly an even greater movie than The Exorcist, but that, that doesn't mean The Exorcist isn't an unbelievably great movie in its own right. Um, but yeah, no, Mil Miller's uh, performance is, amongst other things, he's got that voice, that, you know, just the tiniest bit of nasal baritone. Hmm. Uh, he, he simultaneously seems like a comforting presence 
as well as oddly a vaguely threatening presence, which obviously they lean back into in a major way in uh, in Exorcist Three. Uh, but it, it, it's still just uh, such a, a beautiful performance of a guy who's just trying to be a good guy in a situation that you know, starts off you know, just in his day-to-day seeming familiar and then turns into something that is way above his pay grade. <laughs> you know, I really think the film works as allegory to uh, uh, talking about the psychological aspects. Um, and if Blatty did did believe that it was allegorical toward uh, those psychological aspects, it works on that level. Uh, but it also works on a supernatural level. I think you can look at it from both avenues and make an argument either way. And I find that I find that interesting. Uh, oh, oh, there are absolutely reams of academic uh, commentary uh, going into how the movie uh, is just a metaphor for dealing with fucking teenagers. Yeah, uh, which absolutely works. That said, the sheer visceral nature of the picture makes me just want to kind of accept it at face value. I I want that demon to be in there, and I want it to get fucked up at the end of the movie. Now, okay, <laughs> am I making this up? Didn't the demon have a name? And what's Pazuzu. 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 Yeah. yeah, it's Pazuzu. I, but I think Do, that's in like the second or third. That was never explicitly stated in this film. Uh, the actual icon that uh, Max von Sydow faces in the desert is uh, of the, I believe, Sumerian uh, deity uh, Pazuzu, the demon lord of the things of the air. But that's not, not really explicitly stated until Exorcist 2, which, of course, was originally written as an exorcist ripoff. Uh, but then ended up getting bought by the studio anyway and put in the hands of the talented but mercurial John Borman. That 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 film is another uh, hiding-in-plain-sight instance of uh, multiple different extant iterations of the film floating around, but in that particular case, none of them particularly improves it. It's a mess. It's a fascinating mess. But it's still, you know, just from a narrative standpoint, an absolute honking disaster. I don't remember liking it. I don't plan on seeing it. It does have some amazing visuals in it. Uh, I actually recommend giving it a look if you're feeling adventurous at some point. Uh, but uh, I yeah, it does bar- have. I do- can barely watch what we watch for this show <laughs> with kids. <laughs> Fair, and enough. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, put put it on the provisional pile. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Uh, that, that's, guys, the, did, that's the maybe watch it uh, if you're a week in another place by yourself uh, <laughs> pile. Yeah. Did you did you guys ever see the I think it's the '90s movies Repossessed in which yes uh, yeah. with, with Linda Linda Blair reprising her role and then Leslie Nielsen I believe in it. Mm-hmm. That I, one I I, what... I I never actually saw but I always wanted to so that's on my pile. I think I, I just remember the ads it. for that. I was a big yeah. fan of of Leslie Nielsen because of Naked Gun at the time. So I love that movie. I, I loved that movie. I haven't seen it in many, many years. I don't know if it holds up, and it probably doesn't. Well, maybe not. Might be worth will, revis- visiting at some point, though. Yeah. I will say that one of the things that kept striking me about watching The Exorcist and seeing Linda Blair as a child is, um, yeah, we watched the series, which was actually very good. And can I spoiler that? Because I think the casting for the... Very adult Reagan was amazing, and I want to mention it. Is that 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 it, it, if, as long as you're not being specific, that doesn't constitute a complete spoiler. Um, the first you say I, it for me. Uh, oh, you want me? 
Uh, um, <laughs> I don't want to be the bad guy. You be the bad guy. There is, there is a major twist uh, about halfway into the first season of the Exorcist TV series that you know, finally puts back together why this is the Exorcist TV series. Um, Okay. Yeah, but I'm thinking I'm talking about the cast. The ca- the casting is is fantastic, but I I like I say I actually you want you guys to watch that, so I don't want okay. to uh, I don't actually want to say that. I'll just say that I was like that as I was watching this, I was like that was perfect, perfect. And it, it is still need it to see the second perfect. season. Wow. I I, really I got it piled s- up. I just haven't seen it yet. I really want to see this show now. Uh, I that's actually been on my pile, but you guys are making it sound amazing. It's uh, really good. It's the, really the, good. The first season manages to pull off a lot of the same uh, slow burn that the movie itself does, is serialized over a series of episodes. Uh, it does get intense. Uh, and I didn't think I would care for it as much as I, I, I did, actually. I don't even remember the second season. I think it was bad. I think you only saw, I think we've only seen the first episode of the second season. And we season. didn't even care anymore, did we? I mean, I it, it looked like it might be intriguing. It just looked like it was veering away from, uh, from sort of the thing that made the first season so ultimately interesting. Um, this is a fascinating franchise in its own right, just because... With one exception, the first movie, nobody can really agree on any of the rest of the movies, although at least Exorcist 3 is definitely running uh, uh, promoters ahead of detractors uh, at this point. Uh, Like I say, Exorcist 2 is a fascinating mess. Um, I like uh, Rennie Harlan's prequel, uh, Exorcist the Beginning. It's it's a little basic. It's kind of a wind-up jump scare machine, but at the same time, it has... It ends up building a measure of apocalyptic or pre-apocalyptic intensity uh, that I, I think does justice to the first movie. And that, I think, ultimately ends up being the weakness of Paul Schrader's pe- prequel, the one that was pretty much shot and then pretty much disposed of and then just remade directly, but still ultimately ended up getting released, uh, mostly because it it, it was trying too hard to be a prequel to The Exorcist. I mean, it's right there in the title, Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. It is the first movie that ever had prequel in the subtitle. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting that both of those exist, but uh, you know, despite uh, some of the conventional wisdom on this one, I actually favor Harlan's version over, uh, over Schrader's. Uh, I still don't know if it's a terribly good movie. The only ones that I'm going to straight call a masterpiece are The Exorcist and Exorcist Three. I've seen both the Schrader and the Rennie Harlan versions of those movies, and I don't remember a damn thing about them. Not a frame. <laughs> I don't think they were effective. Individual mileage will vary, of course. <laughs> like I say, realistically, the, most of the conventional wisdom for both of them is absolutely on your side in this one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just happen to have, you know, be wired to retain a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, does anybody have any final thoughts on The Exorcist? Not really. I watch no. it if you haven't, but you probably I have. Mean, <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. It's a, it's not the scariest movie ever made, but it, it is very effective at what it's trying to do. It is. Uh, it is not the scariest movie ever made. I don't find it particularly scary. I, I just I'm going to go with uh, Besner's very careful use of the word effective here. <laughs> this is this movie is a battering ram to the soul, and it's a, a worthwhile experience. 
not just as a piece of uh, or as a seminal piece of horror history, but just as a piece of entertainment with the uh, with the spoken question mark at the end uh, that is worth seeing and probably reseeing. As I say, for my part, I actually find the shorter version uh, more effective than the longer version, uh, just for being more intense. But I still find the longer version kind of fascinating, just because it more closely rep- uh, represents uh, kind of Blatty's view on the film. And Blatty, of course, ended up being a fascinating director in his own right. Uh, if you guys haven't seen the Ninth Configuration, I'm going to make you watch the Ninth Configuration. If you haven't seen Exorcist Three, I am going to make you watch Exorcist Three. It's on the pile. that'll about do it for us here on what's on the pile join us next week as we dust two netflix offerings off our piles starting with sweetheart the story of a castaway and her survival against a massive fish monster after that we'll be talking about the perfection a thriller about two very talented cellists you can find us on facebook and twitter at what's on the pile or visit our website what's on the pile.com thanks for hanging out